This is the AAOS Career Podcast, part of the Bone Beat Orthopedic Podcast channel. This series features conversations on professional development and growth opportunities within the field of musculoskeletal healthcare. I'm your host, Austin Beeson, Chair of the AAOS Resident Assembly. Thank you all for listening in. We are joined today by a very special guest, Dr. James Dolly. He is a practicing board-certified emergency medicine physician and the founder of the White Coat Investor. The purpose of this episode will be to provide some advice and resources to orthopedic surgery trainees and early career surgeons for maximizing their long-term financial situation and helping them navigate basic financial decisions at this stage of their career. Before we begin the interview, I want to recognize and thank SoFi for helping to support the AOS Career Podcast in 2021. You will hear more about SoFi's special offer for the AOS members later in the episode. But for now, I'd like to welcome Dr. Dolly and thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Dr. Beeson. It's wonderful to be here. So there is obviously massive interest in financial literacy among orthopedic surgeons and no limit to the amount of time we could spend discussing these topics. Knowing that we're not going to be able to cover the entirety of this subject in a single interview, I would urge listeners to tune into Dr. Dolly's podcast or pick up a copy of his book, The White Coat Investor, to learn more. But I want to start with the question that maybe underlines the impetus of this episode, which is, how financially literate do you think orthopedic surgeons need to be? How much can or should we outsource or rely on financial advisors? And then how can we balance this information with the constantly increasing fund of knowledge we're expected to learn throughout our training and careers? Well, the good news is finance and investing is actually a lot easier to learn than orthopedic surgery. But the truth is probably 80% of docs want and need a good financial advisor. So for those docs, the very best thing I can do for them is get them in touch with somebody that's going to give them good advice at a fair price. But it's kind of true that by the time you know enough to choose a good financial advisor, you know enough to do it yourself. So if you have any interest in being a do-it-yourself investor, functioning as your own financial planner, your own investment manager, I encourage you to do so. Reading a few good books, especially when you start managing your money very early in your career, when there's not that much money to manage and mistakes don't cost you that much, I think it's relatively easy to get in the habit of doing so. With the advent of the internet, it's easy to get high quality information about investing, about personal finance, but you do have to develop a certain set of skills. You've got to be reasonably financially disciplined and you've got to be reasonably financially literate. And that does take some time. Having a knowledge of how the markets work, knowledge of financial history, knowledge of financial services people, because there's a lot of them out there that maybe aren't so good for your pocketbook, will help you to be successful in the long run. That's very encouraging. I want to break down a little bit of what you said. When you're pairing folks up with financial advisors or when folks in our position are looking for financial advisors, what should we be looking for? The key is good advice at a fair price. The price is actually the easy part. In general, if you're paying two to $10,000 a year, you're getting a fair price. Financial advice, investment management, it's an expensive thing to buy, but that's the going rate. So if somebody's trying to charge you a lot more than that, you're not paying a fair price. You also want to understand how they're charging you, because there's a lot of people out there that call themselves financial advisors, but are actually charging you commissions. And when somebody charges you a commission, they're actually a salesperson. They're not an advisor. 
And generally, the products they sell you are not products you want to buy. They might be loaded mutual funds. They might be whole life insurance. So it's important to get a fee-only advisor, not a fee-based advisor that charges you fees and commissions, but a fee-only advisor that just charges you for their advice. And there's several different ways people do that. They can charge hourly. They can charge an annual fee. That's pretty common for asset management. Probably most common is what they call an asset under management fee. They multiply the amount of your assets that they're managing by a percentage. 1% is probably industry average, but honestly, if you have a large portfolio, you're being ripped off if you're paying 1%. And so you've got to do the math each year of multiplying your assets by that asset under management fee to make sure you're still paying a fair price. The good advice is a little bit harder. And that's the part where by the time you understand what good advice looks like, you probably understand enough to do it yourself. But these should be advisors talking to you about your strategic asset allocation, about index funds, about good investor behavior, not trying to time the market, not trying to pick stocks. You're just looking for bread and butter, boring investments, stock and bond index funds, maybe some real estate. If they're getting really cute with some crazy investing ideas, that's probably somebody to steer clear of complexity sounds sexy and it allows them to sell you a much higher fee, but it's usually not good for your bottom line. Is it important to diversify in the folks that you're getting advice for? And what I mean by that is, is it important to have someone who's advising you on investing and a different person for student loans, one for disability insurance? Can those be the same person? Are there things that we may be more equipped to manage ourselves and how do you navigate those decisions? I actually prefer not to see people get their disability insurance or term life insurance from their financial advisor because an insurance agent is a salesperson and that's not the kind of person you want to be getting your financial advice from. Now, if you need disability insurance, then it's fine to go to the insurance agent and have them help you pick out which of the high quality own occupation, specialty specific policies that you're going to buy. There'll be experts in the policies. It's like walking into a truck dealership and they show you all the different models and show you the advantages and disadvantages of each one, but you don't go to them and ask them if you need a pickup because the answer is yes. And so you don't want to necessarily take advice on some subjects from the salesperson. As far as student loans, if your advisor knows enough about student loans, it's fine to get student loan advice from them. But I find that many of them just don't keep up to date. And it's a surprisingly complex subject. We actually started a student loan advice company about a year ago. We call it studentloanadvice.com. And all it is is one flat fee. You meet with our consultant, Andrew Paulson, for an hour, and he helps make sure you're managing your student loans. So given the cost of student loan advice being very cheap, much cheaper than classic financial advice, I think it's fine to get separate advice there as well. Your financial advisor, mostly they're going to do two tasks. Typically they will do financial planning and they will also do asset management, but you can actually split those among different people as well if you would like. Perfect. And since we breached the topic of student loans, outside of directing folks to studentloanadvice.com, what advice do you have for trainees or early career surgeons and tackling them? And obviously that varies from person to person, but how do you start that conversation and what is your general advice? Well, that's exactly the issue. Everybody's situation is a little bit different. A lot of times it's not that complicated though. By the time you come out of medical school and you're in residency or you're in fellowship, if you have private student loans, you should refinance them. You can refinance them to a very low rate and there's a couple of companies out there that will give you $100 a month payments. I believe SoFi is one of them. They have a resident program, I believe, that allows you to have $100 a month payments. That's really easy for your private student loans. 
The federal student loans is where it starts getting more complicated because there are all these income-driven repayment programs, forgiveness programs, and it depends on who you work for and how much debt you have and what your income is or how big your family is. There are all these other factors. But if you're single, the right answer as a resident is usually to enroll in the income-driven repayment program called Revised Pay As You Earn or repay. That's pretty much a no-brainer if you're single or if you're married to a non-earner or very low earner. But if you're married to a high earner, there's all kinds of other strategies that might be available to you, such as enrolling in the pay-as-you-earn program, which is separate from repay, and actually filing your taxes, married filing singly to try to get some other advantages there. The big decision actually comes when you leave training. And the big decision is, am I going to refinance my student loans, try to live like a resident for a few more years and direct the difference between your resident income and your attending income to paying those off? So if you're going to work for a private employer, if you're going to be in your own practice or you're going to join a multi-specialty group, whatever, that's probably your pathway. If you're going to be in academics or you're going to be directly employed in a full-time job by a nonprofit or a government agency, a 501c3, your best option is actually public service loan forgiveness. And what public service loan forgiveness is, is this federal program for federal loans that if you make 10 years worth of payments, the rest is forgiven completely tax-free. By the time you get out of an ortho residency and a fellowship, you might have made six or seven years of payments already. And so you only have to make three years of payments as an attending. And those payments you make in residency and fellowship aren't very big. You might get the lion's share of your student loans forgiven via the public service loan forgiveness program. That's very helpful advice. And like you said, it's very person to person specific, but I think that gives everyone a good framework. And we'll certainly include the link to the website that you mentioned in our episode notes. I want to switch gears a little bit in terms of investing. What advice do you have for residents looking to start this process? And then does that advice differ from what you would give to an early career surgeon or someone, like you said, who's entered practice? Absolutely. My investing advice is completely different. Basically, I tell residents, you're not going to get rich as a resident. You don't make enough money. If I can get them to get the insurance they need, some disability insurance, and if anybody else relies on their income, some term life insurance. If I can get them to make sure they're doing the right thing with their student loans, to learn to live on a budget, I'm pretty happy. That's about it. If you want to get started investing, it's wonderful to do. I recommend you generally, unless you're playing some game with your student loans, that you do so inside a Roth or tax-free account. A Roth IRA, Roth 401k, or Roth 403b through your training program, that's generally the way to go. Now, check with your HR department. See if they give you a match for your contributions into the retirement plan. If they give you a match, you should put enough into that retirement plan to get the entire match. That's like free money. And so if they don't, it's okay to just use an individualized retirement account, a Roth IRA, and just invest there. If you max out that Roth IRA, if you put $6,000 in that every year, you're doing better than the vast majority of residents. But I don't think residents should feel like they have to do that. The most important year of your financial life is the year you leave training, that first year as an attendee. Now you got that higher income. And if you tell me what you did with your income that first year out of residency, I can basically predict the rest of your financial life with surprising accuracy. So what I tell people to do is to live like a resident for the first two to five years, okay? 
You don't have to live exactly the same lifestyle. Give yourself a little raise, whatever, but don't grow all the way into your attending income. Say you're making $400,000 when you come out. You're making $50,000 as a resident. Even if you pay hundred grand in taxes, there's still a difference of $250,000 a year. You can wipe out a lot of student loans very quickly with $250,000 a year. You can catch up to your college roommate's retirement nest eggs very quickly. You can save up a down payment on your dream home very quickly. So for an orthopedic surgeon with less than average a student loan burden, maybe you only got to live like a resident for a couple of years. You just have to weigh that for yourself against your financial goals. You'll be surprised. It's not that hard to just keep living the same way you've been living and then gradually grow into your income. That's really the secret. It's not so much what you invest in it in the beginning years, especially it's about how much money you're putting in there. So when you come out as an attending, I'd love to see you maxing out every retirement account available to you and even investing a little bit more taxable or non-qualified brokerage account above and beyond your retirement accounts. I do want to ask you about one thing that I've heard in your podcast and read in the book is you've mentioned boring investing is good investing. Talk about what that means and how that might help us make investing decisions. My investments, they're not going to keep you awake very long because there's nothing to them. The academic literature is actually very clear when it comes to the stock market. The secret to doing well in the stock market is to simply buy all of the stocks. Then every time there's a really good stock that kills it, you own it. Yes, you own all the losers too, but what happens if you buy them all is you're guaranteed the market return. And over the course of your career, the market return is good enough. Those who try to just match the market by buying low-cost, broadly diversified mutual funds that are called index funds can match the market very easy. The data over the long run shows that if you will just do that, you will actually beat 80 to 90% of those professionals who are trying to pick the winning stocks and avoid the losing stocks, much less all the individuals who are reading Reddit and trying to choose which ones are going to go up and down. And if every month of your career, you will put some of that into the stock market via these boring index funds, you'll be surprised how quickly you build wealth. And at that point, you can do whatever you want with your life. You can practice as much or as little as you like in whatever way you like. Whereas if you get caught up in this game of trying to pick the next winning investment, you usually end up performance chasing. You end up paying a whole lot more in taxes and you end up spending a lot of time lying awake at night worrying about your investments. And it just doesn't work out well. That kind of leads a little bit into the follow-up question I had for that. How much time does a person need to be able to commit to following stocks or investing in the stock market to be a responsible investor? It seems like it can be very minimal if you invest in stocks that you don't have to worry about. What are your thoughts on folks who are looking to invest in and follow some of those trends more closely? Yeah, you're absolutely right. You actually don't have to know a thing about individual stocks. There are, I don't know, six or 8,000 stocks in the world. Every month I buy them all via an index fund. Over the long run, they typically earn about 10% a year. If you will keep investing in stocks, you will get a reasonable return. And this is a very easy way to do it. You don't have to know a thing about Microsoft or Pfizer, much less any more exotic investments. So if you can make some safe, boring investments, you're going to set yourself up for a pretty good financial future. Retirement seems so far away, but there are moves we should probably be making now to set ourselves up for a 
comfortable transition when the time comes. What are those kind of things? Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily, for a young doc, spend a lot of time focusing on retirement. I would instead focus on freedom, on giving yourself options. Let me give you an example from my career. In emergency medicine, you work a lot of nights, evenings, weekends, holidays. Only about a quarter of our shifts occur during banker's hours. And that was fun and exciting in the beginning. But you know what? A decade out, it's not nearly as exciting to be up trying to intubate a drunk guy that's puking all over you at three o'clock in the morning. And all of a sudden you start going, maybe there's a way I can earn a little bit less money and not work night shifts at all. And if you've taken care of finances, all of a sudden you have those options. In orthopedic surgery, maybe it means you can drop some procedures you don't like doing. Maybe it means you take less call, whatever it might mean. But having those options, I can assure you, will be much more important to you 10 years out of residency than it is right now. And so I would think in terms of freedom rather than retirement as you save money. What are some of the biggest blunders that you have seen folks make either early in training, early in their careers, or late in their careers from a financial standpoint? Oh, every mistake in the book doctors have made. And I've made my share of them. Don't get me wrong. That's how I got started in this is I realized that I was just going to keep making errors unless I figured this stuff out. But let's list some of the common ones. Every now and then I run into a doc who is working for a nonprofit and they would be eligible for public service loan forgiveness, but they're refinanced and they can no longer get it anymore. Or even worse, they deferred their loans. Nobody should defer their federal student loans. It's really a terrible move. You shouldn't defer them. You shouldn't put them in forbearance. You're far better off in an income-driven repayment program. A huge mistake doctors make is just not saving enough money. They grow into that physician income right as soon as they come out of residency. They get a couple of Teslas on credit. They go buy that big doctor house. And then six months later, when their student loans start coming due, all of a sudden now they're hand to mouth and two hundred, three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars a year. It's terrible. That's why I like to see residents save something so you can hit the ground running when you're attending. Other mistakes, whole life insurance is almost always a mistake for a doctor. You have better uses for your money, especially early in your career. Getting into these bad investing habits, trying to pick the next winning stock or the next winning cryptocurrency, those sorts of things, I think is a big mistake. A lot of people get into real estate investing, which isn't necessarily a mistake, but if you don't put enough effort into it to make sure you're doing it right, and then you add a dash of leverage, you can get into a lot of trouble. So if you want to do real estate investing, I would actually encourage you to do it, but do it right. Get educated about it. Be reasonable on how much debt you take on to do it. Every financial mistake that the average American makes, doctors make them too. They just make them with more money. So much of this seems like foresight. Maybe that's a big takeaway for finances and just career planning in general. Yeah, this stuff's not that complicated. And don't try to make it complicated. You've already done 90% of this by virtue of having a high income. All you got to do is the last 10% and you're going to become wealthy. But a surprising number of docs don't do that. The statistics actually show about 25% of doctors at retirement age are still not millionaires. After 30 years of a $200,000, dollars $400,000 a year income, and it's pretty sad, actually, to think that all that's been frivoled away. On that topic, what are some areas that most orthopedic surgeons or medical professionals in general, do we not think about enough or think about early enough? And do we have blind spots that we're really not seeking advice on? One of them, I think, is insurance. Insurance is important, right? 
I am against certain types of insurance, some crazy index universal life insurance policy, but too many doctors don't actually buy disability insurance. And about one in seven gets disabled during their career. So this type of insurance actually gets used and people get disabled in residency all the time. Likewise, if anybody else relies on your income, you got to buy a term life insurance and a lot of it. Even as a resident, you probably want at least a million dollar policy. There was a resident a year or two ago who died in childbirth and left a non-working husband and the child basically to fend for themselves and had never bought any sort of term life insurance. So insurance, I think, is a big blind spot. Not having a good student loan plan is another blind spot. Not realizing how important it is to be deliberate about how much you spend and how much you save, I think, is a blind spot. I think a lot of docs think they can just out-earn whatever they spend. But don't kid yourself that you can always pick up another call, that you can always just do a few more cases. That strategy leads to burnout. And now you've killed the goose that lays the golden eggs. In terms of disability insurance, when do you recommend orthopedic surgery residents or residents in any profession start looking for that? Yesterday. I probably wouldn't buy it with student loans as a medical student. I think it's okay to wait until you start earning money. But that's it. You should buy as an intern. And they'll only sell you a policy that'll provide a benefit of maybe $5,000 a month. But I'll tell you what, $60,000 a year is a whole lot better than trying to qualify for Social Security and getting just a few hundred dollars a month. So I'd buy it as an intern. And make sure when you do buy it that early in your career that you also purchase what's called a future purchase option writer with it. It'll cost you just a little bit more. But what that does is it provides you the ability to buy an additional policy or enlarge the policy without having to still be insurable. So even if you take up scuba diving or skydiving or you develop diabetes or you get cancer in residency or whatever, you'll still be able to buy more disability insurance as you leave residency and start making the big bucks. So a few years back, you wrote an article on the 10 things that matter most in personal finance, and it evolved into a really insightful podcast episode. You mentioned that we spend a lot of our time worrying about the minutia, maybe not enough time considering the big things in life and finance, and that ultimately impacts our financial situation more than day-to-day -day ups and downs. And you've touched on this, but I just want to get your uh, thoughts on what are some of the big things that we should think about when we're making a financial plan? One is avoiding divorce. All these docs are worried about being sued above policy limits by their patients and losing all their personal assets in a lawsuit. You almost never lose personal assets in a lawsuit. You know what we should be terrified about, though, is losing money to our spouse. Really, the best asset protection technique there might be in the whole world is date night. Keeping that relationship strong avoids not only a lot of heartache, but a lot of expense. It cuts your income in half for the next seven to 10 years, and it cuts your assets in half. Another one is your income. There are orthopedic surgeons out there that are making $150,000. And there are orthopedic surgeons out there making $2 million a year. It's a huge range. Most people dramatically underestimate the difficulty of doubling your income. And paying attention to how much money you're making, especially early in your career, can really pay some big dividends. Because if you negotiate a, or more likely fail to negotiate a starting salary that's fair for you, you get locked into that. I think docs really need to give a lot of thought to maybe being in some type of an ownership position where they own their practice, at least in some form, because when you own a business, you get to keep the profit when the business does well. 
although there's more hassle and maybe more work, you also get more control. You're less likely to burn out and you generally make more money. And then I think another big one is your savings rate. So I encourage you every year, add up your net worth, all your debts, all your assets, put it in a spreadsheet and compare it every year. Make sure it's going in the right direction. Take your total income from your tax return, then add up how much you put in retirement accounts or into other investments and divide it and see what your savings rate was. Was it 20% or greater? If not, you probably need to bump it up, even if it means spending less. If it was over that, you can give yourself a pat on the back rather than getting fixated on, I'm going to take a 2% car loan because I think I can out invest that. And I'm going to try to get a a credit card that pays me 1.5% cash back. That's not how you're going to get rich. You're going to get rich by making a lot of money, saving a big chunk of it and finding some reasonable way to invest it. Dr. Dolly, I can't thank you enough for being on the show. This has been so much fun. And I know our listeners now have a lot to think about and a lot of resources to turn to. Are there any thoughts, anything that we didn't touch on that you wanted to talk about? I've spent the last decade plus putting together a resource that is pretty helpful to docs who have questions about finances. In fact, it is extremely unlikely that you have a question about your finances that I have not answered at The White Coat Investor. So The White Coat Investor is a blog, podcast, YouTube channel, online course, a live conference that offers CME, a book series. It's a bunch of communities online. Come by if you have questions. Start learning this stuff. There's a whole community of docs online that want to help you be financially successful. The information on the website and the podcast is completely free to you. And if you need connections to other people that can help you, from financial advisors to insurance agents to student loan refinancing companies like the sponsor of this one, SoFi, you can learn about those companies and find out who the good guys in the industry are. So I would recommend people come by that and check it out. We will absolutely include links to the White Coat Investor website and any other resources that have been discussed during the podcast and our show notes. But again, thank you so much for all the advice and the conversation. You're very welcome. It's wonderful to be here. And I just want to thank your listeners for what they do, because it's not that easy. They took a lot of training. So thanks for what you guys do. Thank you for listening to this episode of the AAOS Career Podcast, part of the Bone Beat Orthopedic Podcast channel with production and sound design by Mission Based Media. For more information on this topic and to hear other conversations on professional development, please visit aaos.org forward slash the bone beat career.